Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. Hello again. Welcome back. This beautiful Saturday morning. I'm here with a good pal, Cal. You may have recognized Cal from two previous podcasts. One where we interviewed with Andrew Horanich, the up-and-coming theologian wonderkind. Yeah, that was pretty legendary. That was legendary for sure. Three and a half hours of just pure knowledge. That kid is unstoppable. (laughs) Unstoppable. And then a couple weeks ago, Cal was on with Chris, and we had a little um, dialogue between atheist and Christian. And um, today, we are going to talk a little bit about Cal's story. Cal's really interesting background, where he grew up in Hare Krishna back in the day. And then when he was in his teens, he became an atheist, materialist, didn't believe in God for the longest time and then maybe just in the matter of just a few years ago past few years jesus has called you back to himself um in the form of a form of christianity called christian universalism but um cal's going to talk a little bit about his his spiritual roots his journey we'll talk a little bit about Hare krishna what's that like and um and also a few interesting things about cal he um we connected on the internet because i was listening to his podcast and when we started chatting i was like hey you're a speech therapist too i'm a speech therapist so we we both work in the same occupation (laughs) Uh, we both have young children um yeah i mean it's just funny how how many similarities we have we both have this odd thing called synesthesia where you can match different colors with uh, or shapes or some stuff, different um, multi-sensory approach to like organizing information in your brain. But anyway, yeah, we're both we're both pretty interesting guys, that's for sure. We're both French but, Canadian, but don't mention that because if we do that, then the audience will hate us. So. Yeah, we are we are both French Canadian. I grew up, although we didn't grow up in Canada. We're we're expats, or I don't know, we're we're descendants of the Canadians. My family is the L'Esperance and the Le Pen family. He's the Reve. Galia Reve. Um, yes. So anyway, um, as a speech therapist, Cal, one really important topic is how do we properly use who and whom? What is the difference? Well, you're talking about the, the nominative 
versus the accusative pronominal case. It's very simple, truly. Um, very simple. No, I mean, uh, I think the, the main trick with that one is you want to have a kind of substitution test where if the expression uh, works um, with, um, with like, let's say- The he, objective, him and, him, and, him and her, right? Um, oh yeah, where, yeah. Where, where he versus him so you want to take or, or she versus her uh, mm -hmm. and you want to take one of them and see if it like satisfies the equation better or something like that so uh, whom do I call do I call him or do I call he sounds better with him and um, uh, let's see um, who said that I mean you know who said that no, he said that. We wouldn't say whom said that. It gets trickier in cases yeah. where um, gets trickier in cases where um, you you have it fulfilling both roles. I gave the ticket to whoever parked their car or whomever parked their car because technically it's both the subject and the object oh. um, of of two different verbs, and so in that case. The, it's an arbitrary rule, as all rules of grammar ultimately are. Um, that you would uh, you would use the the nominative case. You would use the subject form. Um, and so I gave a ticket to whoever parked their car there. Now then, there's other cases where, where you and I were talking about one that was really thorny, and I had to use a different. I mean, the substitution test again. I thought illustrated it, but mm -hmm. there was another one that there was another thing that I thought that was important to recognize, but I, I, I can't even remember that case. You know it, was, it, was, it was really tricky. It was, it was my interpretation of what you said that when, when I said it, I don't know. Anyway, I don't want to get into I think, much I, think, I don't. It. Yeah. Right. No. In other words, on that one, you and I were not even, we were, we, we were speaking different languages. Not, we were not even talking about the same thing. Right. Yeah. Right. But still there were, there was a, it was a case where it was like, <laughs> and the substitution test was like not, not really clearly illustrating it. Anyway, I really like the substitution test. That's really, it's really helpful actually. I've, I've used it a couple times now when I'm writing something, I'm like, what are you, whom or whom, whom or he? So basically who is to he, she as whom is to him, her. Correct. Or them. And yeah, yeah. People also struggle with like between you and, <laughs> between you and me, because they, they don't want to say like me and, Peter went to the movies. They don't want to mm -hmm. say that because they know that's wrong. But then they also think it's wrong to say anything other than Peter and I or you and I in any other <laughs> context. And um, see the mark of a truly sophisticated grammarian when they when they say things like, um, you know, so and so told him and me, and, and not not uh, or so and so told Jim and me, not Jim and I. So. See, uh, I, I take no issue with me and Cal were talking one day. I take no issue with it. I'm, I'm totally fine. Right. I mean, and, and the truth is whom is on its way out because like you can't use it naturally. You know, if you use no. it in speech therapy, you can't use it naturally. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. The real one that is, is really troublesome is that if you have a state of being verb, you have to use the, uh, you have to use the nominative uh, form of the pronoun again so in other words not that's me even though in french i think that's grammatical same way but uh it's it's that is i 
Um, and you know who who wrote that? Oh, that was that was I who wrote that. It's like it never. It's never going to sound normal. That is me who wrote uh, that. That is I. Who, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's never going to sound normal, but that's technically the rule. Like you see that in um, Nabokov. Nabokov is grammatical enough that you know he says I am he and he is I. Sounds so strange, but it's perfect grammar. Wow. Anyway. <laughs> that that grammar lesson aside, I think that's just important for everybody to know. Um, but anyway, um, that grammar lesson aside, let's hear a little bit of Cal's story. We use the term spiritual heritage. Where do you find your spiritual heritage? For you, I believe it's in Hare Krishna. Um, and I'm curious, are your do your parents still practice Hare Krishna? My dad does. Really? So he's still involved with it. Yeah, I mean, um, he was he was initiated by the the big guy, the by um, his name is Abhay Charan Bhaktivedanta, aka Prabhupada, Swami Prabhupada, Srila Prabhupada. Um, and yeah, he's still going strong. My mom is um, Christian now, but she was Hare Krishna at the time that they met, or after they met, she converted. Oh wow. That's fascinating. So technically, so your mom didn't grow up in Hare Krishna? No. She converted? Neither did my dad. Oh, really? Yeah. Because that came on the scene. Like the 60s the, and 70s. The global West, yeah, in the 60s and 70s. That's so fascinating. I'm so curious. How do, how do Hare Krishnas feel about the Beatles? <laughs> they like George Harrison. Yeah. I mean, he's a... He writes that whole song, Hare Hare. Oh my Lord, it's all about worshiping Hare Krishna, which is hilarious. Have you want another grammar tip? You know, people, they overcorrect. I'm sorry I'm struggling. Every day I struggle <laughs> just staying awake because the narcolepsy. But um, uh -huh. if you want a grammar tip, uh, you know, it's not Krishna. It's, it is Krishna. It's a short I. Oh, really? Well, it's a pronunciation. Yeah, like, right? like it's not Vishnu. It's I'm pretty sure it's just Vishnu, but I could be wrong about that. I want to say Krishna because... Sure. I, because I speak Spanish, so the E, I is E in Spanish, so I'm just I'm just reading it like Spanish, Krishna. But, but you Krishna. speak English too. I know, and in but English the I is short more often. But than to not. me, for some reason, it my brain wants to read it like Spanish in my okay because it's mind. not English. That that's how my yeah. brain works too. In other words, there's as far as um, languages go, there's English and there's not English. <laughs> and whenever I'm speaking not English, all the words from all the not English languages that I know. All the vowels sort of, change. They're sort of joined together in confusion. I just always assumed like Krishna was like an, an anglicized version of it, you know, and Krishna was like the real thing. But... No, Krishna is because because in the transliteration, it would be K-R-S-N-A. And that's how you know because the vowel is gone that it, it, it's actually short. It's, it's a neutralized vowel. Schwa. Kind of, yeah, yeah. You're kind of right. It's very centralized, and it, mm -hmm. yeah, but it's not a schwa because it's stressed. Now, yeah, you, know, you gotta mind your eye. You gotta, eh. okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> Battle that's, of the speech therapists. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, anyway, enough speech therapy. It would be, it would be a there. wedge. It would be a wedge vowel because it's stressed. Okay. Um. I. Think oh yeah. The little. I could be wrong. No, no, but it's not. No, crushed. No, it's Krishna. It's a short I. Yeah, it's a short I. It's not a uh. It's a i. It's not a schwa. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, before we lose people. Yeah, I made I made a mistake on my IPA there just now. 
Okay, it's okay. We forgive you. Anyway, um, so your both your parents converted to Krishna. Do you know anything about that story of how that came about? Um, yeah, my dad told me some. You know, my dad, uh, like me, is kind of a odd person. Uh, he was especially in his his early twenties when he had kind of paranormal mystical experiences. He claimed to have experiences of astral projection. Um, in which he saw Sanskrit letters, um, the Devanagari script. He traveled to different places and was reading um, books in Sanskrit. But, um, you know, he wouldn't take anything of the experience with him into waking life except the memory of what he had done. And he felt that when he saw those, when he saw that writing in person or in real life, that he recognized it from his, his dreams. So he converted to. Hare Krishna in his uh, teens. He must have gone, uh, it was either in Quebec where he had come down to the United States, I think. I think it might have been in New York that he, or when it was just getting started, that he, that he encountered it. That's fascinating. So then um, later on, obviously he had you you know. <laughs> uh, do you have any siblings? Sorry, my mouse button is sticky. It's not a mouse, but cursor click button. Anyway, um, yes, I have siblings. Um, in terms of half siblings from my dad, I have two, older brother and sister. And then I have um, a younger brother who he and I share both parents. And then I have a youngest brother, you know, but that's actually, um, we, we, um, we share a mom only. So he's my half brother. He's my youngest brother. So depending on how you count it, you know, I have between one to three, no, one to four siblings. Um, so, and depending on how you count it, I'm either the oldest or I'm in the middle. Oh, nice. So how, how do your siblings feel about growing up Hare Krishna? Hare Krishna. Well, only Mukunda. Only only my younger brother grew up Hare Krishna. Okay. And he's still yeah. Hare Krishna. Yeah? Yeah. You still stay in touch with him? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I talk to him. Um, he's he's very he's a very cool guy. So he's very, very, very smart. Um, cool. Um, but uh, I guess we don't see quite eye to eye theologically. But, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's okay, at least. Well, that's... It's good that you guys are willing to have the discussions, though. Well, we only had had them on a couple occasions, you know. It was mostly centered on reincarnation and why I found it difficult to uh, difficult to believe. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I've heard your description of why reincarnation doesn't work metaphysically or theologically. Can you give a brief description of that? Because I kind of liked that. I wanted to hear it again. If you if you reference it in the singular, then you cannot have heard it because I have given many many <laughs> arguments yeah. and description. At least, at least like once or twice, I've heard you mention it in your podcast. <laughs> right, and um, well, I mean, there's a number of issues with reincarnation. Um, identifying the uh, supposed problems with it, you know, requires you to kind of specify which version you are critiquing. Let's see, Benjamin's trying to get at my computer. Um, so if we're 
talking about, let's say, the New Age conception of reincarnation that can potentially be quite different from the Hare Krishna conception of it, um, it is quite different. So, I mean, it kind of depends on whether we're, which one we're talking about. Most of the time, I'm actually talking about the New Age uh, version of reincarnation because the, the Hare Krishna understanding of it is going to be quite unpalatable to most people. You know, the New Age appeals to people because it has a certain aesthetic, it has a certain freedom um, that it affords you in terms of theological, there's no other word for it, um, speculation. Um, uh, and the Hare Krishna version of reincarnation, by contrast, there's no real reason to accept it unless you're just a Hare Krishna. So I would say broadly, the problem that every form of reincarnation of which I'm aware that's worthy of the term reincarnation, that is, it has something iterative about it. It's, you know, the, the, the prefix re means something. Um, it, 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 it suffers where it has to give some account of the soul that, that actually transmigrates from body to body. What is the element of continuity between from life to life? Because if I identify two scenarios, one in which I die, um, and in the next moment, some squirrel is either conceived or born, a squirrel pup. Um, and depending on what, see, the thing is, there's differences on whether the soul enters uh, at conception or whether it enters upon birth. In the New Age, more often than not, you, you hear people saying, oh, and at that moment, I chose my, my birth family, and, it, and I sort of came into that body as, as I was being born. Like it starts with being born, but in the Hare Krishna version, it would start at conception. And it's, you know, I mean, and that, well, that should already clue you in from my point of view that, that something is kind of, there's, there's a few screws loose there, um, metaphysically speaking. But um, so anyway, you know, if I have some scenario in which I die and a squirrel pup is either conceived or born, take your pick, um, and, and that squirrel is me. <laughs> And and you have the same and you have a scenario in which you know the identical uh, cow, Kalia, Kalia dies, and um, uh, the and, and an identical squirrel, you know, to the same squirrel parents um, is born, um, but it's not me. What is the difference between those two scenarios substantively, other than my mere assertion that in the former case it's it's me, and in the latter it's not. In other words, do we have a conception of the soul that does something, that it, it, it's causally efficacious, it can cause, and it, it can cause and can be affected um, by other causes? Um, uh, or do we have something that possession of it or non-possession of it makes no discernible difference in any other way than we, that we can discern except from the assertion, except for the assertion? In the former case, it's there, trust me. In the latter case, it's not there. Um, and uh, whatever doesn't have effect and, and can't be affected by anything is really just another fancy term for, for nothing. It's, you, can't, you make the soul so causally inert that it becomes indistinguishable from a non-entity. And so there are, there are issues there. There are, there are issues whenever we have to really um, get specific or get meaningful on... on, on uh, the the account or the description of what it is that that passes from life to life or body to body.
Yeah, and it's like um, now if if that second iteration of yourself, that next iteration of yourself, has no nothing in common with your past self, is it just an, an entirely new identity altogether? You know. <laughs> So, so, so that's, that's the deal. So my critiques have been centered on um, what you would more technically call reincarnation um, without persistence of memory. And it is because um, questions of personal identity and, and the, the conditions under which an identity persists through time are notoriously thorny in, in philosophy. And one can offer uh, material criteria for persistence. One can offer formal um a criteria that is like you can say it's a it's a matter of um uh retaining your pattern the ship of theseus comes to mind where it's a ship that gradually gets replaced piece by piece or plank by plank uh, uh um sail by sail and then the question becomes is the ship of theseus whatever um uh, you know bears the kind of formal continuity or is the real ship of ship of Theseus lying in pieces on the ocean floor um, or washed up, you know, piecemeal on various beach, beaches. Um, and so, you know, you can, you can get at that. And, um, you know, the, the, the brain, if, if you're a materialist, it, there's the molecular turnover of, of, your, of your neurons is something like 100% every three months with the exception of the cytoplasm or the, the, the genetic material of 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 the the neurons um but uh, a materialist doesn't believe that consciousness runs on that cytoplasm um uh so in other words what's actually supporting your consciousness on on a materialistic picture would be the neurons um so there's there's no hope for persistence um materially speaking um you can you can look at the patterns and you know that's that's better um um although certainly um the pattern of oneself changes very profoundly in such a way where w one never quite knows whether to say one is the same or one is different because one is always the same on one level but different on another and then you can go deeper i in fact i had a podcast episode about that about my sense that the real criterion of uh, the persistence of a a personal identity is something like narrative continuity that 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 you know and, and from that standpoint memory is key um to the persistence of a given identity and that a person who loses memory um cannot really meaningfully be said to be the same person maybe from the outside as far as we're concerned they're the same but on the from the inside they're not and 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 but even so i still think the essence of any composite phenomenon is something like nothingness slash everythingness there's an infinite number of ways for a thing to be the thing that it is and that means that in terms of its logos um its individuating principle the things that the thing that makes it what it is it has no essence other than or, or form other than the form of formlessness or an essence of an, an essenceless essence. Um, it's nothingness slash everythingness slash God slash, like, I would say Jesus Christ, but I'm kind of crazy. Um, and so, um, 
I get into all that because questions of personal identity are notoriously thorny. But if you if you deliberately cut yourself off from memory as a criterion of um, you know identity persistence, you're just making it incredibly difficult for yourself uh, when it's already hard enough. And, and so it's very easy to raise questions um, that that just just you know they they really just get at like what is the difference between reincarn the being the reincarnation of X and having and just having certain formal resemblances to X and like it's presumably wrong to say that I'm the reincarnation of my father and it's very easy to see why it's wrong when that statement is asserted while my father is still alive. Because to being a person, we we with being a person, we associate something else, which is numerical identity. This this idea that only I can be, it's only one of me. Um, and so, in cases where um, the the person that one is alleged to be the reincarnation of also exists, then we have some kind of strange parallel um, or dual conception of reincarnation that just doesn't sound like iterative or successive incarnation anymore it's not the same one doing this uh, doing an operation multiple times it's mm. something different that probably shouldn't even be described as reincarnation yeah it's funny it's so funny how you know there's a lot of there's a very diverse expressions of the new age but they all seem to have like these characteristics and i feel like reincarnation is a very common characteristic in new age i don't know what it, it certainly is, like, is. And, yeah very interesting and i would say that's because for the new age it's very important that you be seen as your own creator mm. the new age is all about salvation of the self by the self you you, you want to be saved don't look to any god outside you god is not salvation jesus is not the christ you do you go inside and you do the work mm. and you know these personal relationships that you have with other people are meaningless you know, this has been reincarnated, you've been reincarnated so many times, it, do it doesn't mean anything, um, especially in Hare Krishna, this is this is the emphasis. So, you know, really just go within, it's all within the outside. How does it not is. turn into solipsism in a way, you know? Oh, because it is solipsism and that's what <laughs> hell is and that's what the devil wants. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it is because ultimately it's like everybody in my life is just a means to my end. Well, kind of, yeah. I mean, and, and they say things like everyone who wronged you and whom you wronged are they're really just your spirit guides who have agreed to incarnate in certain roles in order to do soul growth role play with you. So you can learn something, but then forget it again, to relearn it later, to forget it again. I mean, it's like, I don't quite know what is going on there although it's the, incredibly the, narcissistic well the thing is I'm, I'm i'm sort of parodying it i mean the real truth has to be something complicated because you think about eternity like eternity is all time like on some level you've already died and you've already ascended to heaven if that's where, where you're going so think about that as you exist now it's like there's also a a, a dead and ascended peter already in eternity because <laughs> Because time is just like non-existent. It's like, or it, it's time is it's it's all all at once. You know. <laughs> well, the real eternity question is, is all whether, at once. Well, the real question is whether time and eternity are are on so to speak eternally separate tracks, or whether there's ever any union 
interplay um, uh, intersection between them. And I've been very influenced by the uh, autodidact philosopher Christopher Langan, who emphasizes that anytime you have two mutually real phenomena, they're always related. That's what it means to be mutually real, mutually relevant. Um, and um, even to identify a difference between two phenomena is necessarily to point to an underlying or shared aspect of their identity. Mm -hmm. So that I think time and eternity must continually be uh, in their interplay. But I would also think that even if there was some like, let's say higher self version of Peter that was having a metatemporal influence on the events down here, this Peter that you are here is numerically distinct and is its own unique person and, and, and phenomenon. Um, otherwise there would be no point. If there were nothing generative about this, let's say metatemporal process, um, then you know it, we, we truly would have some kind of meaningless um, identical repetition of um, you know some some kind of you know tautological term that that adds no new meaning mm. um, and um, yeah but you know it gets very confusing because if you're talking about panpsychism you're talking about things that exist at their levels of panpsychic scale so in other words theoretically there's not only in existence Peter and Cal but also the the sort of entity that results from the conversation of Peter and Cal you can look at the higher self version of Peter as some kind of any 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 network of of relationships that you can delimit or delineate theoretically on panpsychism has its own consciousness and being but the thing to appreciate there is that in virtue of having identified that specific set of relationships or um, you know that that specific identity you see how it's actually different in meaning from what you are what you are is unique as a unique term it has its own unique essence paradoxically there's an infinite number of ways to be peter but that doesn't mean anything can be peter just as there's an infinite number uh, there's an infinite number of numbers that can be in the set of whole numbers but that doesn't mean every number can be in that set that's a that's that's an aspect of transfinite logic with which many people struggle. People talk about the you see it in the way that people talk about the multiverse. Um, uh, oh, there's infinite possibilities. Therefore, every possibility exists. The, the 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 consequent does not follow from the antecedent. Just because there's an infinite number of items in the set doesn't mean everything can be in the set. The set has its own pattern. It's its own individuating principle. And that's kind of related to like Platonism and the form. Each form upon inspection is itself a manifestation, a showing forth um, of some more fundamental form. The only form when you get down to it, when you zoom all the way in, so to speak, um, when you, I always think of like using your fingers to scroll down your phone, it's like subdividing the continuum. The only form is the form of formlessness. Um, that's that's God. It's it's sort of the everythingness, nothingness that's in everything. And and um, paradoxically, it's like you know, like every composite phenomenon has an essence of like nothingness, and that's somehow the the necessary condition of its having a uh, continuous identity through time. It's very paradoxical, but um, yeah, it's wild. Yeah, reincarnation is definitely something that doesn't really make much sense. But I mean, back to Krishna, what, what is Hare Krishna? Hare Krishna is 
a form of Hinduism, a very specific monotheistic form of Hinduism that emphasizes the personal nature of the absolute, um, that takes the, the Hindu notion of the absolute as, as um, exemplified in, in the Brahman, the, the concept of the kind of like unspeakable, inexpressible, both and, neither nor, and says that, that that absolute is really nothing more than the effulgence or the halo of a, a person, um, a personal God who on one level can be seen as an avatar of Vishnu, but who more truly should be understood as the, as the more original form of God that Vishnu um, represents. But um, Hare Krishna, um, uh, it is, uh, it's, it's personalistic, monotheistic Hinduism. It's, you know, if you take classical theism and you take the kind of version of theism that it's often pitted against or defined against, what, what some people call theistic personalism, um, which is a term that already some people object to, but it's really emphasizing the personal, mutable, changeable, um, uh, temporal nature of God. Um, you know, Hare Krishna is, is, it definitely has elements of classical theism, but it also has a lot of what you would call theistic personalism. And for, for Hare Krishna, they're just sort of both there. And, and the, the tension is perhaps recognized, but not made too much of just assumed. Yeah, he's, he's God. You can do like, you know, like in Western theology, um, if you say, can God make square circles? The answer is invariably no. The question was put to, to Prabhupada and he said, you know, can God can God make a boulder so heavy that he couldn't lift it? And he said, yes, he can. And then in the next moment, he would lift it. Sorry, you're on mute. Um, and uh, so, you know, for, for Hare Krishna, it's a kind of syncretic, both and kind of um, um, uh, philosophy or, or, or way of thinking, um, which is really not unsuited to theology because because ultimate reality, you know, borrowing language from Christopher Langan, it's a self-resolving paradox and every aspect of reality ultimately inherits that. You know, if I can wax ridiculous for a moment, um, the ultimacy of ultimate reality is such that every reality is ultimately ultimate reality. Everything inherits that paradoxical, dialetheic, both and, neither nor character. Ultimately, upon analysis, it all has this kind of nth order or dialectic recursive feature of it. Um, where, yeah, you can say both X and its opposite of the thing and still not have exhausted, um, still not have furnished an exhaustive description. Um, and um, so... Uh, you know, that's Hare Krishna. It's so a lot of people, if I tell them it's it's monotheistic, they say, Well, it can't be Hinduism, then it's like, Well, maybe it's not Hinduism, then, but really it is. Um, or, or if it's, uh, um, and uh, so, so yeah, anyway, that's 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 really how I would explain it in a nutshell, almost like Christianity, but with, re with reincarnation. I mean, it's very close in certain respects, and then. So what does the practice of Hare Krishna look like? Like, is there a, is there a church meeting? Is it like a, 
Is there some sort of like discipleship involved? Is there some sort of text? Yeah, for sure. So much. I mean, okay, there's a lot of texts. There's a lot of discipleship because everyone is supposed to have a guru, a spiritual master, and there's a whole there's a whole disciplic succession of gurus going all the way back to see. So Hare Krishna really got it start with a guy named Chaitanya Mahaprabhu who was um, on the scene in the 1500s, and he was thought to be God in human form. Again, not unlike uh, Jesus Christ, um, although maybe if they were forced to iron out the theology, they would say it's not so much being uh, one person with a human nature and a divine nature as it is just a person with a divine nature whose humanity is some sort of illusion. Um, um, so really, Hare Krishna is, is properly called Gaudiya Vaishnava. It's the Gaudiya Vaishnava Sampradaya. Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And that started with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. But that was itself um, uh, a tributary flowing from a, you know, another, another stream, like the, just the, the stream of maybe Hinduism proper. Um, the, I, you know, the, the phrase... Um, Qualified non-dualism comes to mind. I think that Ramanuja had his own particular take on the question of the relationship of the one to the many and of whether reality is, is one thing or is it two things? And if so, if it's one thing, what one thing is it? And there's a kind of dual aspect monism that gets innovated. And, um, you know, I think that, that it actually happens to lie very close to the truth. Um, but But so it's downstream of more ancient Hindu traditions. Again, Hindu is just a very, very broad word. Um, but what's distinctive about it is, well, I think I think what was, it might have been downstream of a more ancient form of monotheism. And then what's kind of new about it, I think, is the way that it starts to emphasize the originality of the, the personhood of Krishna. Krishna, who is an earthly incarnation of, of Vishnu, is held on a certain level to be more original um, than 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 Vishnu himself, and that um, beyond the the realm of Vishnu, which is really just his kind of well, I think they have terms for it. I can't remember, but um, it's like a oh, Vaikunta. Is that what I want to say? So, so anyway, it's like Vishnu's domain, and then beyond that, it's like the effulgence of Vishnu. You just become one with the Brahman. But then beyond even that is the is Goloka Vrindavan, which is his which is his kind of it's his personal abode where you enter into personal relationship with, with, with Krishna and you assume different roles and he assumes different roles. You can be Krishna's mother, you can be Krishna's friend, you can be a blade of grass upon which he steps. And that is in the Hare Krishna considered to be a, the highest form of liberation. And what it looks like is actually not just oneness with um, everything, but actually, again, a particular delineation and an assumption, actually a return to um, an original particular identity, an original capacity in which you served Krishna um, prior to your 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 fall and your decision to be your own Lord, your own God, and to enjoy reality on on its own terms. And so you entered Maya, which is Krishna's illus illus illusory potency. It's his energy that can generate. The illusion that that you desire if you desire to live the illusion that you are your own god and not really the servant of god in terms of your inherent or constitutional position 
Um, and so, man. So anyway, it's, it's, it's incredibly, it's incredibly complex theologically, incredibly. Um, there's really can't even, it's almost like you can't even begin to explain. It almost it. sounds like um, a little bit of Gnostic, Gnostic kind of sounding stuff for where sure. they get into like the deep weeds of like all these like archons and different characters and whatnot. But yeah, it's very well, interesting. The, the question is, why does Christianity have a fall? If yeah. Christianity is all about like this up and up creatio ex nihilo, um, you know, generative linear, um, you know, metaphysical or cosmological picture, why is there a fall? Yeah. And, and if we're so much about like the material realm, why is the fall that's depicted clearly something that did not actually happen? Unless there were two hominids named Adam and Eve, but in which mm -hmm. case, in that case, where did the other hominids come from? Depends um, on how fundamentalist you are about it, but <laughs> right. And and were or they, they like the they're like archetypes? Watermelon. And and were the T Rexes eating watermelon in the Garden of Eden, where there was no death prior to the entry of sin um, into the world? You know, these 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 questions can be can be asked, but perhaps they don't really deserve to be answered um uh i mean it seems so, like it's a, all part of the plan of creation and there's that whole concept that we're not even finished being created right until the telos of everything right and and so what i'm saying is like the notion of a fall the possession of some original blessedness to which you must return in the same way that t.s Eliot talks about like you return to where you you know, began, but you, you, you know the place for the first time or something like that. It's kind of common. It's, it's, not such a, it's not such a unique or distinctive or even Gnostic idea. Probably the word Gnostic is maybe overused or we use it without even really clearly knowing what we're talking about. But you know, all religions share some, some aspect or feature of it, I, I, I would think. Well, it's like that deep hidden knowledge. It's like insider knowledge, which I mean, Paul seems to be like, yeah, let me reveal to you some hidden stuff that's been hidden from all the ages. You know, it does kind of sound Gnostic-y when he's talking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does. It does to me. And I, I think I think the, the question, is it Christian Gnosticism or is it Gnostic Gnosticism? And, and that, you know, even though that sounds like a ridiculous question, I really think that that's the question. Yeah, exactly. It's not like Gnosticism is necessarily wrong. It's just any anytime you it's i think it's like basically anytime you have like that hidden knowledge kind of aspect where there's there's some sort of mystery involved but then i guess what paul the points paul's making though is that it was a mystery but now it's been revealed the whole pot passage that's misunderstood is um eye has not seen ears not heard nor has entered into the mind of man what things we are to see but then it says but now it has been revealed to us so what he's saying is like these deep mysteries have been revealed in Christ. It's no longer a mystery. It's no longer secret. Everyone can know. Maybe that's like a different, a distinct feature of Christianity. Yeah. I mean, maybe if the, the devil is always in the details. You got to interpret it. Mm -hmm. you know, that's for sure. Very different interpretations of Christianity. Um, um, but, but um, yeah, certainly the, 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 the kind of public, nature the knowability of, of the christian gospel has always been like a distinguishing feature of christianity supposedly from from uh, from gnosticism 
Yeah, and, and it's so more obviously obviously more proselytizing, right? And it's and well, like going and making disciples, proclaiming it to all the nations. There's something more universal about it, I think. Yeah, well, Gnosticism it would say that there's like you kind of originally are God, like you're you're God, and then you like forgot that you're God, and you've got to go back to that original state of being God, and you can only do that through yourself. And so it it has that kind of very solipsistic um, aspect to it. And Hare Krishna is a little bit like that, I would say, in as much as it cause it forces you to really. Um, regard your material your 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 earthly relationships as being kind of illusory because the, the 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 illustration that's given is you have two straws that float down together in a stream they briefly touch and then in the next moment they are they're separated forever um and that's 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 um what family relationships are held to be like on Hare Krishna. They're little more than chance encounters, really. Um, they're the outworkings of karma. But then the question with karma is always the chicken or egg question. I'm living this life because I, you know, accrued some some negative karma. The question is on, under what conditions did I um, you know, develop that that karma? And uh you know, it's because in the previous life I did something wrong, and but you know, my doing what I did in my previous life was, you know, really the conditions from which I chose, uh, and that structured and constrained my choices. They were also the the result of my own bad karma, which I accrued in a still more previous life, and it never ends. And and it's it's really like an it's it's like a retro linear way of trying to explain. Our circumstances, which never ultimately really works, because it's an infinite regress. Um, and um, so, you know, that's that's. I mean, that's quite. There's so many questions um, yeah. that one one can raise about it. But um, what does guess... um, what does a Hari Krishna like community and service look like? Like, what, or their service by I mean, like their gathering. What does their gathering so, look like? So, and what is it like living in their community? Like being a part so of. So mine was. Right. So mine was ISKCON, which is different from real Hinduism or even just like original Hare Krishna. Um, so on some level, I can really only speak to that. It's pretty similar if you go to like an ISKCON temple in Mayapur, though. I mean, but, you know, the service is every day. Service is really like it's going to be upwards of three times a day, maybe more five times a day. I mean, like, you know, it can be round the clock. You know, they'll do 24-7 like music in the in the temple room. Um, and, um, so the question of when service is kind of like always, yes. Um, now, um, but I mean, just maybe an imitation of Christianity, they would have their love feasts on Sundays. Um, and maybe Sunday was the day that everyone would try, would, would make the most effort to, to show up to the, the temple. Um, but um, the community, I mean, they they often have um, Indian dress at least when they are performing like temple functions. If they have a day job, then not necessarily, but they usually wear neck beads um, that are made of tulsi wood, which is a sacred basil plant that grows in India. Um, uh, they have um, men have a, a certain kind of 
not a ponytail, but it's a tail of some kind. It's like lengthened hair at the back of their head. And I was told that's like, that's to distinguish us from the impersonalists. So the Buddhists shave their heads um, and leave nothing by which, let's say, the personal God can grab them. But we do. Um, we shave, they, they shave all their head except for that, that tail in the back. That's just a, that's a distinctive Vaishnav hairstyle that has its kind of origins in, in older traditions. Hare Krishna is not a cult where cult is understood as something new. Hare Krishna is not new, whatever it is. Um, and um, so, um, uh, yeah, they wear Indian dress. Um, they, they use um, Indian uh, jargon. Um, the, the term of address usually for a man is Prabhu, um, which means master. You can use it for a woman. More commonly for women, you call them uh, uh, Madhaji which is just like an effect, the G is like an affectionate suffix, almost like a diminutive. Um, and Mata means mother, just like Pita means father, which it was a, it was a huge shock to the, the, the British linguist who discovered, I think in the 1700s, his last name was Jones, I can't remember, um, that, that, that Sanskrit and, and virtually every European language with the exception of the, 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 the Finno-Ugaric languages, Finnish and Hungarian. Every European language is cognate with Sanskrit, um, and so there's there's lot yeah there's there's lots of words that are actually they share the same ultimate Proto-Indo-European roots. Um, wow! And then is, yeah. is the Latin that makes it them more distinct, like Latin influence and Greek influence? So so Sanskrit has no influence from from Latin or Greek, but it is a cousin to those languages. And if you look at the grammar of those languages and the way that they have their masculines, their feminines, their dual numbers, their um, their 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 um, phenomenal cases, they're extremely similar, and they have the same actually core vocabulary, the same gods, even it's the really same god. Yeah, it is. It is incredibly fascinating. the The theory would be that the Yamnaya people of Central Asia, of, of really the Caucasus or a little bit east, somewhere in Russia spread in both directions, west and south. And they, they were conquering people who conquered with, with chariots and they laid, a lot, they laid a lot of emphasis on cattle and possession of cattle as a measure of wealth. Um, and you see both emphases very present, both the European uh, cultures and, and in the, the Aryan, this is the root of, of the, the term Aryan, this is where it comes from. Really? Um, yeah, well, the, the Aryans are an Indo-Iranian people. And they are, they are what the what the Yamnaya called themselves in distinction to the people whom they conquered. Um, and these people were distinguished again by like this this language, this 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 um, emphasis on on cattle and and chariots and and um, uh, warfare. Um, and they had their particular gods, especially what what you would call Deus Potter. Um, uh, which is Zeus, which is Indra, which is um, uh, Jupiter. You see it, you know, Zeus is Deus, Jupiter is Deus Potter. Um, and um, Indra, I'm not sure if it's cognate, um, but um, it's the same concept. The storm god reigns, um, is, 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 the, is the king. Um, and the, but, but Hare Krishna 
in the way of all monotheisms, it kind of identifies God as someone really ultimately formless and beyond any particular um, celestial uh, uh, power. Um, although Hare Krishna, like Christianity, has the interesting sort of innovation of then identifying that formless absolute God with actually a, a distinct personal form. So it's extremely complicated. But Now, is, is Krishna kind of like in a Christological sense, is, is Krishna eternal? Or is he, or was he, did he like ascend to deity? No, eternal. He's eternal. He eternally was yeah. divine. Correct. That's fascinating. It, I mean, it is interesting that Hare Krishna became super popular in the 60s and 70s. Alongside, you have obviously um, anti-war efforts and hippies, a lot of psycho psychedelic drugs, and also the Jesus movement, right? <laughs> The Jesus movement was huge, and the uh, the Jesus movement was kind of at odds with the Hare Krishna movement, which which seems to have died off for the in a large part. Whereas, like obviously, Christianity is still going strong in the West and in America, for the most part. I mean, more than in Europe. I, when I talk to people in Europe, they're like, "Yeah, nobody here is religious anymore. <laughs> they're very very secular society." But like here in America, I feel like for the most part, uh, not for the most part, but still to a de decent extent there's people who are still quite religious and spiritual but um but yeah it's fascinating to think about like when Hare Krishna came about it kind of does look like a mirror image of the gospel in a sense like but I'm sure there's a lot of differences and it seems like the Hare Krishna really appeals to those people who would probably be predisposed to um falling into new age stuff that, or like self-help kind of stuff like you know yoga and all that stuff not to say that i don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with yoga doing yoga for exercise but like as a spiritual practice i don't know it's kind of weird to do it as like a spiritual uh practice or ritualistic kind of thing but to do it as exercise is another thing i think but um but yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting. And in that so in your experience in um, going to Hare Krishna services and being a part of that community, and you also went to like a Hare Krishna school as well, or no? That is correct. Yeah. So what everything we, you said about everything you said about the kinds of people to whom it appeals, I think, is also very accurate. Yeah people who fall into new age also people who are probably into multi-level marketing schemes or something like that <laughs> like, oh well yeah in, in general see the thing is anytime you have something new it's it selects for the oddballs and and mm -hmm. you know that was true of christianity when it first got going i'm sure yeah to a degree there was there was but i mean the, we had a while a wide swath of people becoming uh going becoming people of the way of christ you had the rich you had the poor you had well, Jews, you had true. Gentiles. That's, What's that? That's that's no less true of Hare Krishna. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, every movement has appeals to certain people for sure. Yeah, and there's I that, would it, agree with you that that the identity of God that is revealed to you in Christianity is is more correct. It's more eternal. On some level, it is just a yes no. Um, on one level, I am tempted to answer it in the form of, yeah, it's more accurate. On another level, it's, it's, it is just a distinction between accurate and inaccurate. Mm -hmm. um, and 
has Hare Krishna really decreased the number? I don't know. Um, maybe it's holding steady or maybe it's decreased. Maybe it's increased. I, I don't know. All I personally know no one who's in Hare Krishna. So I don't know. Well, I mean, I mean, the, I, I don't know that that necessarily means anything either way. Yeah. All religions claim to be growing and that that's not impossible because the human population is always growing. Exactly. True. Um, so, you know, it's kind of impossible to evaluate, but, but um, I do think that, um, you know, like the Krishna, he does things like he washes the feet of his devotees. Christ does that. Mm. Every time I see Krishna at his most convincing, he's like, He's like Christ. But when I look at Christ, he's like more Krishna to me than Krishna ever was. To me, when I see Christ, I see he just is Krishna, but he's more Krishna than Krishna. Um, he's everything I saw in that God, and he's, he's more because he descends farther, and he becomes more human and more humble. And um, uh, in every way, he, he descends lower so that he can ascend higher. Um, uh, but um, so, so anyway... Um, yeah, I like that the concept you'd mentioned it before of they describe Krishna as the the original flame, right? You have like a set of like infinite candles, in or a whole spiral of infinite candles, candles, and Krishna is the original flame and the substance itself. It almost and that lights all other flames. And I mean, I think that's a good, probably a good description of Jesus it kind of borders on that whole concept of the cosmic or universal Christ in some sense, which I was having, I mean, you heard that discussion with um, Father Jerry or Reverend Jerry the other day, but like um, it is an interesting concept, but it seems to be like, you know, truth, truth is like a, a light, I think. And Jesus is the light of the world. And I think there's light in like all, all people who are genuinely, authentically and genuinely seeking there's going to be some sort of some light within that but it's just like the brightest light i think is jesus you know in that sense <clears throat> the brightest and purest light is jesus and but there's gonna but light goes outward from the center it hits all these other expressions of spirituality in some way shape so, or form sometimes you can see a truer picture of jesus in a false religion that's not even necessarily a reflection on or let's say you even leave a, a religion that's not a cult or not false. Um, and, um, but nonetheless, just because of various, let's use the word accidents for now, but various contingencies of one's upbringing, one couldn't see the truth that was on offer. Mm. And one could see more of it in a, in a religion which objectively considered or you know, um, stripping the personal element out of it, you might say it has a better claim to truth even though it still has its own theological inaccuracies or questionable emphases. Um, and, um, you know, I think, I think that that's, that's kind of what it is. Um, you know, what, what Satan means for evil, God means for good. Um, mm. And, um, you know, I think that when people converted from Christianity to Hare Krishna, it wasn't only for evil reasons. Um, there, there was something that they saw in it. Um, now, whether whether they will be able to stay in it once they receive the fullness of the truth. You know, I, I tend to think no, but. Well, I'm wondering if they, if they grew up in a particularly dry and um, very, I don't know, fundamentalist and wooden picture or, or tradition of Christianity where, where the gospel is very wooden and the Bible is very wooden. 
then yeah. it probably was a breath of fresh air to see someone like Krishna who's embodying, yeah, yeah, yeah. embodying this beautiful love for other people and this kind of like self-improvement aspect of it. Yeah, probably, well, you know, they, yeah, they, they were hippies. Appealed. They were, they were rebelling against something. They were being edgy. Sure. yeah yeah and and so the thing is Hare krishna was kind of like the jesus movement in that sense it's like it's religion but it's not the one that we're rebelling against it's not the the religion that has really if you look at it truly it's like it's it's corrupted itself by by making deals with the powers um that that be uh, like the catholic church essentially did and always has done um and um yeah, so you know, it's like you know, don't trust anyone over thirty or what have you. Um, but uh, did you have any experiences in the Hare Krishna growing up in it, like, um, or was it mostly just propositional ideas that you were taught to ascend to? Um, I was going to say I was just looking up when Vatican II was, and I was I was going to say I think my dad was still kind of in the Tridentine, you know, early Catholic Church, and you know, he was he he struggled because. He had oh, all these yeah. questions, and they wouldn't give him anything but the most wooden. And they had the Latin services, yeah, right. And um, although I think he would have been a boy when they switched, and um, I don't think his dad was ever okay with that. I think his dad, my my grandfather, Raja Arkad, um, he was uh, uh, a a vacantist. Didn't think the Pope was for real. Um, yeah, but I'm I'm hilarious. sorry I did I didn't interrupt you when you were asking a different question I just uh, no no it's fine you you had to finish your thought but um yeah so any did you have any experiences within that religion no. I mean not really no I mean I'm not I'm not the kind of person who tends to have those experiences anyway mm-hmm. but nothing nothing about it was particularly like I don't know really grabbing or arresting it was just kind of just oh no i mean look there's there's any any religion can engage your 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 whole heart at least for a time you know i mean it's it's quite it's quite compelling i mean the the harinam sankirtan movement is is very it's very compelling you know it's like you what you do is that that's that's from india that's from the 1500s that was chaitanya mahaprabhu's ministry it's like you would just grab your clay drums and your brass uh, symbols um and you would go on the streets and make music and their music is great like i mean to me to this day i find that bengali music a lot uh more fun to listen to than than christian hymns um and um i mean maybe the the kind of more complex um uh choral singing of orthodox or catholic churches is, is a little bit more interesting but the thing is that doesn't really have rhythm bengali music has melody and rhythm i mean it's just to me at least it's really good but i i think that my appreciation for it is something like being bilingual from birth in the sense that um i can i i appreciate it when i hear it i don't think people who didn't grow up hearing it would appreciate it but to me it's actually it's actually to me it's really great to me it's actually superior to western music i just think it's a lot more rich yeah i love that kind of music too and, it, and there's a big cultural component as well you know regionally i mean it's what the, music has a lot to do with culture i mean music that we hear in america says a lot to do with what our culture is about which is basically materialism or not but <laughs> but well when western you look, music is all like four four yeah, and it's, it's like boring. The, the chords are very stru- like the the keys are very structured and it's mm-hmm. like 
in in Eastern music, they do weird stuff. Like they have quarter tones, half tones. Yeah. They have weird scales. Um, uh, modal they scales. They have weird rhythms. They have weird, weird rhythms that are that'll yeah. be like, um, you know, just just completely like off the wall, like compared to Western music. Yeah, it's really cool. I I I've always been super um, inspired by Middle Eastern music. One of my friends, um, one of my best friends, his uh, father's from Af uh, from Morocco, and he's a Moroccan drummer, and like he played these wooden flutes. But he passed away last year. But but it was really cool. He could do like these crazy scales on these flutes. It was really neat. Yeah. So then at what at what point did um moving on what, at what point did you lose your faith per se in Hare Krishna age 16 Was there anything that happened that just made that happen made No that... it was a it's a culmination of things I I went to public school for the first time and um but I had already begun to ask questions and I found that people couldn't answer them And really I was I was kind of a you know, I was a, I was raised in a very fundamentalist way. Um, you know, we always have a period of our lives in which we're willing to inquire critically about you know, the foundations of things, and then an age when we stop. And so, you know, I took the I took the the fundamentalism at which my father arrived as my own starting point, and I questioned it, and I found the answers unsatisfactory. Um, and I was, I was sort of a believer in what the, the worldview that really shaped my thinking, which was like science, like, because, because when we said that, you know, uh, Lord Ram built a bridge to Sri Lanka, however many thousand years ago, we meant that it really happened. And, um, and, and, and when we said that, um, you know, all life like all 8,600,000 um, existent species that's 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 not a zoological number that's that's a that's a vedic number that's the number of species that there are held to be no more no fewer 8,600,000 they all came into being at once perfectly formed you know that doesn't leave any room for evolution so we meant that in in very definite distinction to the theory of evolution which therefore could not be true you start reading all this weird stuff about how whales have pelvis bones and you know like penguins have knees and what the hell is going on with that um why are human sinuses up here and not you know where they should be and and um why is the vagus nerve of the giraffe go all the way up before it goes all the way down why didn't god just engineer it to just you know take the shortest route you know, um, some kind of kind of questions. I, I'm not saying that it all happened by blind chance, but I'm saying that the idea that it happened in six, you know, it happened all at once six thousand years ago is also kind of, I don't know. I mean, it's just it could be, but there's no there's no specific serious warrant to believe that, you know. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I just was like, well, you know, could be could be Christianity is true, but it's foundering on the same questions that. Um, that Hare Krishna was seeming to founder on. Um, yeah. Well, what's interesting about, I, I a couple of years ago, I w w did like a deep study of Genesis and understanding the, um, there's this, the word in Hebrew, yom, which is often translated as day. But in Hebrew, 
yom can be any indefinite period of time like a, it's not or any period of time that has not indefinite a definite period of time so any period of time that has a beginning and an end so when it says one yom it could be referring to an, a whole age in which like the stars and right. the heavens were created right god did it in one however in one unit of however long he did it in and then so it's like it's a tautology it's like we just think we don't know anything it's like okay cool but you know it's like uh you know just kind and of the concept of there was more day there was evening and there was morning um in in ancient hebrew it wasn't talking about a day but it was a way for them to describe a time period that had a beginning and an end there was evening and there was morning it's wow. a it's okay. more it's more describing a time period yeah a beginning and end to some sort of yeah. period of time yeah 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 hebrew, hebrew is very very beautiful in the way that it's it's very loose and very simple in the it way is very poetic too. ideas yeah so anyway you were you were talking about how basically you had this fundamental frame fundamentalist framework in your mind or approach to your tradition and it just didn't compute with science which you know is yeah. actually the experience of many christians who grow up in a fundamentalist for sure christian tradition as well and then uh what what happened over the next 14 years <laughs> yeah it was a long time it was it was the sort of same awakening that a lot of people um felt like they went through when they discovered jordan peterson um and everyone at this point feels compelled to make some statement about whether they do or don't identify with his politics um you know, like I, I don't, I don't really care. Um, I, I, I think that, um, I think that he had correctly identified something materialistic, autistic, um, uh, excessively linear, left brain, for lack of a better term, about the way that our society forms people. Um, and um, leaves us with with radical, you know, inadequacies as far as metaphysics goes. With the, the metaphysics that it give, that society gave people like me, in the form of like the, the new atheism, was was just don't. But the move of don't do metaphysics is cannot be anything other than a metaphysical move. But that was it. And it's like if it, you know, it's it's really Thomas Gadgrind. If it can't be if it can't be measured, it can't exist. And, you know, but the, 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 that worldview has, it has very serious implications in all other areas of life. And Jordan Peterson was, for better or worse, he was the only person who was really pointing that out to us in a way that was public. I know that learned people can talk about various scholars who perhaps talked about it or you know, ancient thinkers, but I was a, I was a, I was a young person who, who didn't read, so I wasn't reading those people. You know, it could be then um inferred or argued that i'm simply a stupid person but in that case i'm simply a stupid person i don't know what else to say um uh so you know jordan peterson was was very helpful for me to see the, the sort of jungian side of things that's see. fascinating uh i think it's really interesting jordan peterson seemed to have this this appeal especially like to both religious and non-religious people um who are kind of questioning their own metaphysics or questioning their 
maybe their materialistic or atheistic um, disposition towards things because I mean, it does, it obviously always brings up a lot of questions because when we're talking about politics, we're talking about morality and ethics, right? And, and public life, how do, how do we relate with our government and government relates to the world? Um, how do we take care of our fellow person, fellow people, you know? But besides that, yeah. So Jordan Peterson, he had this impact on you, right? Yeah, I mean, at least in terms of awakening me to the, the reality of symbol. And, you know, I think you just get old enough and you realize that whether or not religion is true on this fundamentalistic level, it's actually true on an existential level. Because you just come to, to understand that, this is very difficult to explain. Let me think of a good metaphor. The, 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 the love that you bear the world so vastly exceeds what you are able to sacrifice for it or what would, what would what would be an example in terms of gambling you 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 are ponying up an amount you know you're you that 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 you could actually never pay um the the there is just I, I, the, 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 the mortal heart senses a, 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 an, an, an eternal uh, store of value um, uh, to which it is drawn and for which it would give its life. Um, and um, there's, just, there's just something there where in that experience and in that encounter, you just start praying. Um, and however long it takes to awaken to that fact, for me, it did, it did require a certain experience where I, um, it was not religious per se, although on a deeper level, that's all it could have been. Um, I just realized that, that I didn't really have an identity other than um, the, the, the relationships um, uh, in my life. That in some sense, I was nothing, that my own personhood was composed exhaustively um, by the relationships that I had with other people. And that insofar as I betrayed them and turned my back on them and sought isolation, I was betraying myself because I actually had no self other than the, 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 the people, uh, uh, you know, again, with, with whom I, I, was, I was blessed enough to be in relationship. That's, that's, quite a, that's quite a transformation, isn't it? Because you, you know, I imagine during that time when you really held to held, were holding hard to your materialist atheist worldview. Um, it does get, I mean, obviously what happens is nihilism seeps in, right. And um, you get probably get pretty pessimistic. I imagine and that affects your mental health in a lot of ways. It affects your way you want to interact with other people. Like there's really, there's real um, negative, some, dangerous implications i think to holding on to that worldview to some degree because then um it's really easy to slip into solipsism because then it's like well if materialism is true then then my experience is unique to me and i'm only i'm experiencing my reality and they're experiencing their own reality this whole like postmodernism, postmodernist worldview that like everybody's reality is like completely distinct from other people's reality or, or experience of reality which is true on some level 
But then it's like, are we even communicating with one another? Like, can we even actually be in communion with other people? Can we even like have empathy? Is empathy even possible? Like, you know, <laughs> um, in that kind of framework, you know, it's, it's really interesting. But like you did, you did mention that you can't, you did go through some mental health issues during that time, right? I mean, to just answer yes would be like, you know, or an extreme understatement. Um, I had like every mental health condition. Like, you know, it's like when I was, when I, when I uh, was seeing mental health professionals, the list was just like arbitrarily long. It's like, you name it, I got it, apparently. It's like I was representing all three clusters of personality disorders somehow. Um, and uh, well, the thing about it is that I don't think I was ever really that crazy, or at least not anymore. But, but the, 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 the thing of it is that because of our society, um, that uh, you know, suffers from blind spots that Jordan Peterson you know, made me aware of, again, is he a god or something like that or guru? No, I'm just saying he's the one who made me aware of them. Um, that, that, that the DSM is blind to the spiritual dimension of reality. And the spiritual struggle will manifest as all kinds of things. And then the DSM is going to diagnose you with several lifelong incurable conditions. And then later on, when you don't have them anymore, it's going to say, well, there must have been a measurement error or something or what happened didn't happen. And and so these are the explanatory inadequacies of a materialist worldview. But but um, um everything you were saying about, about nihilism, you know, however much secular humanists will pretend otherwise, no, I mean it has to be true. And in my case, I would I had fallen victim to a well, and I and I had chosen um to to follow um a kind of weird mixture of like Raskolnikovian rational egoism and transhumanism. And, um, you know, the, the heaven that I was seeking was the heaven for one um, of, uh, you know, the, 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 the singularity, which, by the way, heaven for one is hell. Um, it's a solipsism. But, but the, the, you know, that's, that's really where I was at before, I would say, Jesus tapped me on the shoulder. Um, and he kind of planted that seed, which is as small as a mustard seed. It's indetectable, but it, it, the, the, the outworking and the, the ripple effects were were just um, you know, eternal. And that's in some sense still like the kind of center of gravity of my life. Um, uh, but um, so yeah, mental health struggles for sure. I had I really had depersonalization, derealization where I couldn't feel anything. Um, that was my, that was my, that was probably the, the main thing that I suffered from. And that really will make you crazy um, if you have that for a, an extended period where I had had it for years. And it was so, it was so severe that a lot of the time I didn't even realize that that was going on. Like when you're so asleep that you don't realize that you're dreaming, it's not a lucid dream. You think you're awake in the dream, but you're not because the parts of your mind that should tell you whether you are awake or asleep are themselves asleep. So, you know, in an, in an analogous way, I wasn't even, a, I was so emotionally numb that I couldn't even tell that I was emotionally numb. 
It's like when you're freezing to death and you start feeling warm. Um, and uh, so that's really what was going on with me. Um, a lot of kind of dissociation, um, not, not quite at the psychotic level, at least not at the, at the hallucinatory level. Um, but you know, definitely a drumble, scary place to be. Well, per, prodromal phase of schizophrenia would be something one could add to the already ridiculously long list of things where it's like, it's not really a question of what you're adding. It's really a question of what are you leaving out? Because it's probably easier to just start with everything and then just start taking things away. Um, it's hyperbolic, but I mean, um, you know, like, it, so on some level, yes, you can explain things by tacking on diagnoses, but it's probably not really the wisest way to go. What I really had was, was profoundly spiritual. It's not, it's not absolutely separate from the things which the DSM can recognize um, if narcolepsy, autism, ADHD, sure, you know, go to town. But I, I'm just saying that the, the, the real thing um, uh, that, that was at work there was, was something, was something satanic. Um, yeah. It, it was, it was something demonic. Um, wow. And, and um, uh, probably a spiritually aware person would have been able to detect that right away. Maybe a number of people did, but I, I tended to isolation. So. Plus if you, if you, if you believe that there's nothing spiritual, that everything is, everything is physical and material, then you don't even have the, the ability to defend yourself or be defended. I mean, not to say that's that, right. not to say that's that right. God, that Jesus wasn't defending you and wasn't, you know, encamping around you in those times in the spiritual sense, you know? Well, the, the, the magnificent power of God is such that, you know, what, what the devil means for evil, he means for good. And, mm. and the way that, that he, he constantly subverts the devil's purposes to some greater and un, unseen or you know, un, unforeseen good is, is always a source of, you know, uh, you know perpetual confusion uh, for the devil. Um, it's like trying to, you know, play against a chess master or something. It's just, yeah. It's like when, 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 when um, the power, the principalities and powers were working through the Roman soldiers and through the crowds to bring yeah. Jesus to crucifixion, devil right. thought he was one. He thought he won. Right, 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 correct. <laughs> and then he, and then he rises from the dead, and he's like, "Oh shoot, I played myself." You know what I mean? It's like that subversive aspect of it. It's like whatever the enemy means for evil, God uses it for good. It's amazing. Well, that experience with the tree that you were asking about is what I was referencing. Where one day when it was covered. With, when when the ground was covered with snow and everything was 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 deathly quiet, I thought I thought there is such a silence in my own in my own heart in my own mind. It's just it's quiet out there and it's quiet in here. So why is my heart just racing? And then it was when I had come, you know, on my walk I had come to a certain tree that I always passed by, some tree that grows horizontally. Um, and I don't know what that means, if anything. Um, and, and, um, then I realized that it wasn't that I didn't, because at that point I had become aware that, well, no, I was at, at that point, I guess I, I just became aware that 
that there was all, there, there, there was this whole inner world of emotions that I was cut off from. And then on some level, I had emotions, but I didn't have feelings. I didn't have feelings. So that, that, was, that was an important point uh, as far as waking up. And for a moment, it was like I fell through the ice. Um, and um, I became conscious of, I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I, I had a tremendous sense of guilt. It was like, you know, it was like falling into freezing water. But, but the, the, the thing about it is it's only possible when you, that guilt is only possible when you, when you apprehend the love that you are meant to give and you are meant to receive. You can't, you can't have the guilt without that love. The God to whom you do not, the God who does not owe you anything is not a God toward whom you can feel a sense of guilt, only fear. But the prodigal son feels that guilt when he recognizes the depth of the love that his father bore him. And, and only then. And then the father didn't even convict him. He convicted himself because he saw, he, saw he saw that perfect love and how, and how far he had fallen short of it and how much he had dishonored it and trampled it. So, you know, that's the only way that you can feel that, that guilt. It's not guilt simpliciter. It, 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 it's, it, it, comes, it comes with the recognition of something, something much greater, you know, which is the love of God. And um, I, didn't, I didn't know it as the love of God at that time. I just looked at it in terms of, you know, my, my relationships with other people. You know, growing into the awareness of the mind of minds is like a generalization of the acquisition of theory of mind. So, you know, children with autism do not have a theory of mind until quite late. All children are born, shall we say, autistic or solipsistic, um, which really means they don't even have a self of, uh, they don't even have a sense of self um, because they, they don't have a sense of other against which it can be juxtaposed or contrasted. But it all, it, it occurs that every, every mind rises into self-awareness slash other awareness. And that is true not only with respect to our, to our relationships with other people, but with, with respect also to the ultimate relationship that we have with God. We, become, we come into an awareness of our relationship with the mind of minds, you know, that, that you know, capital O other. It happens sooner or later for everyone. Uh, and it, but I think it's analogous to the, the, um, uh, the, the development of, of, of theory of mind and the, sort of the emergence out of, out of a spiritual autism. Spiritual autism, that's a, that's an interesting phrase, but it's true. I mean, and in a sense, like the new age is like spiritual autism, because it's all just about myself and about my own self-improvement. And, but then, I, but then, I, I think so. Yeah. So, so, you know, the, Rudolf Steiner identified two deceptions. One is the, the aromatic deception, which is that only material stuff exists and was prayed to. That's the real spiritual autism. Then the other, the other deception is, the Luciferian one, which says, okay, spiritual reality exists, but it's other than what it really is. It's anything other than what it really is. And what that is, is that, is that, yeah, it's acknowledging some kind of God, but they try to depersonalize it as much as possible, intelligent infinity. And it's like, yeah, it's nominally intelligent, um, but really it's more like it's beyond any predicate that you could give it. And does it care about you? Fuck no, you know, just go, go inside, do the work over and over again. That's the only prescription. Um, and, um, so it's really just spiritual autism again, um, just smuggled in through a different route. Um, 
but yes um you know that's it, wild it, yeah i'm gonna use that phrase more often spiritual autism uh, well pro- probably you shouldn't just because of um you know it does the, give a pejorative uh, um connotation to autism because i don't think autism is necessarily something bad i think it's some, well, there's something beautiful about it yeah that, that's right i mean there's the medical model of autism that people are questioning and they say well maybe it's not pathological i mean the, the truth is as with all complicated matters that grown-ups discuss the answer is yes and no um but, but some people only want to hear yes or they only want to hear no and so for that reason yeah probably you shouldn't use the word but you know, I take refuge in obscurity. And I also think anyone who's listened this far and listened to the totality of what I've said, and even my own willingness to identify myself as a person with autism and or autistic person, and I truly don't care which does, you you see the work of the the accuser in his propensity to scatter people over words and labels. Mm. And I have, I have no interest in doing that. Um, or, or in going along with that, with that game. Um, but, um, but yeah, so, you know, hopefully people will have heard the totality of what I said, and if not, then, you know, uh, I am sorry for that. And I, you know, probably should take greater care with my language. Um, but it was, yeah. No, I think you're doing just fine. Um, but yes, I mean, I feel like we have, you know, we both work with kids with special needs, with kids with autism and doing speech therapy and whatnot. Real quick, can you, can you just, I know I say the word brief and it's never brief, but can you briefly tell me how the heck did you become a speech therapist? How, how did you get into that? Just, you know, quick, like so three that's minutes. Correct. So you, you need my insane life story in order to explain that because, um, but on some level, like every explanation, it does take the form of subdividing the continuum before Achilles can get halfway to the tortoise. He must get a quarter way there before he can get a quarter way. He must get an eighth way. I try to explain my insanity, but there's, I curiously always have to invoke an earlier, more original form of insanity. Um, I became a speech therapist because I had majored in um, speech language pathology and audiology. Why did I major in that? Because I already knew that stuff. I already knew how to transcribe. Um, I already knew a great deal about neuroscience, at least what was current at that time. Why did you already know that stuff? Because I was insane. uh, when I was like in high school, I had become phonetically aware. I sat down at the cafeteria, well, uh, uh, not at the cafeteria, I didn't eat at the cafeteria. I sat down at a table one day and I realized, oh, I just suddenly understood voice and voiceless cognates. I didn't have the terminology, but I understood these are, these are voice and voiceless cognates. And I saw them all, which ones they are. And then I started writing in my own private phonetic language, ciphered, you know, like, like diary entries. And, um, and so whoever decoded it would have to realize that it was phonetic. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I knew that I, I, I learned, you know, from, from, I didn't know the IPA, but I had just done a hodgepodge of different dictionary transcription languages. And, and look, SLPs, who, they, they use the IPA just for English anyway. So there's actually functionally no difference between between using like a like a, a dictionary phonetic alphabet and, and the international one. If you're not, you know, doing international transcription, you're just doing English. The thing um, is, though, with with English words, graphemically or just written words make no sense phonetically. Most of them, a lot of them like tough and though they're spelled with G.H., 
but they're not both don't have the f sound in there like it doesn't make no any sense. i know and that's that's why you have a dictionary alphabet to, to try to cut through that contusion mm -hmm. um and um and so i wasn't using the ipa but i i already understood basically how it worked um um and uh yeah the neuroscience i i I had a subscription to Scientific American Mind because that was my religion. It's, it's just materialism. Um, and, um, and so I majored in that knowing that it would keep my grades high for law school. Why law school? Because I was, I was enthralled to that weird kind of rascal Nicobian rational egoism slash transhumanism. I thought uh, whoever dies with the most toys doesn't die, but gets to live forever if you can afford it. Um, and uh, so you better put yourself in a position where you can, you know, that, but the, the, the thing about it was I had realized that philosophically it makes no sense. Even, even without a kind of spiritual uh, view of things, it doesn't really make sense for a human being um, to desire to become something other than human, you know, based on certain intuitions I had about, again, persistence conditions of, of identity. Um, and but still, despite those realizations, I was in a very nihilistic place where I thought on some level, I already don't exist. But I didn't want to blame myself for my problems in that emotionally detached um, way of being that I that I entered into. I didn't I didn't I didn't feel suicidal anymore, but I but I I tended to externalize my my anger. Not in a way where I was actually harming people, um, but but uh, in, in probably just of, unpleasant to be around. No, I wasn't. Um, oh. the, I always wore a mask, but inside I, I I didn't have any time or any regard for people. I just looked at them like insects. I was actually a very very very. I don't I don't know quite know I don't quite know how I would react to someone who was like the person that I was. I think I would be afraid. Um, but I think I would also sense the, the, the struggle between good and evil in that, in that person. Um, um, so, you know, it, in terms of my, like, it, it, you know, in, inside, I, I was, it was very misanthropic. And it was part of me that, that really wanted my, my success to come at the expense of other people. So in other words, what I perceive, I always thought, I always thought of the law as something inherently unethical because you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. And anyone who's representing his client, I mean, what theoretically they're supposed to volunteer and submit everything that's evidence, but who's going to do that with evidence that goes against his case? And and you know, then insofar as the 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 justice system is adversarial, it's like your duties to your client uh, cut against your your duties to justice. At least that's the only way. That's the only sense I can make of it. Um, and um, I thought that that was where I had the chance, where, where you know, where I stood the best chances of making as much money as possible. And then after that experience that I had, I realized that that the whole thing, the whole misconceived notion, was just was just rotten from top to bottom. But it still took a long time for me to work out the implications of that, because actually, right after I had that experience, my my response was to go into denial and pretend that it had not happened. Um, but it, some part of me was always aware that it had, and it just kind of kept exerting its effects and all the little choices I made until eventually I decided not to major in law or not, not to go to law school. Um, and, um, 
I uh, so I fell back on what I had. I, I had also thought of computer science, but I was worried that if I did that, then I would enter into that 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 mode of pure intellection and no feeling that I was all too prone to. Um, and um, so I, I I went into speech pathology, um, and because that was what I had majored in, and I had thought I was going to do the medical side of it. It was really just sort of faute de mieux, it's just like just for lack of anything other. Um, that I was doing speech pathology, one had to do something, and that was what I had my degree in. Um, and uh, and then I decided, you know, I realized that you know, adults are harder than it's, it's harder to work with adults than kids. Um, but but you know, insofar as I am faithful, insofar as I acknowledge such a thing as a divine providence, um, I have to see the hand of God in putting me here. I'm probably not the best speech therapist, um, even though academically I was like insanely good. Um, um, but, um, the, the, you know, when, 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 one has to imagine that, 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 you know, what, what, what we mean for evil, God means for good. And, um, there's something that he wants me to do in this role, at least for the time being. Um, so that's, that's how I ended up on speech pathology. So were you, when, in your times becoming uh, a speech pathologist and getting your master's and whatnot which is obviously a lot of work to go through that program um like were you kind of coming back to god in some sense or that's correct that's yeah. actually when it happened really and it's kind of interesting that you chose the more social route a more social career than than you could have gone into coding and been like very anti-social and kind of dug deeper into that kind of non-social autistic aspect of of being or way of yeah being. It's, it's all related to attention because i i really think that adhd and autism are continuous um yeah when i was younger one would have thought i had autism when i was older one couldn't have said that i had autism because i was simply too good at the you know the things that people with autism are supposed to you know have shortcomings with um um, but ADHD, I, I, you know, there's a, bless you. I don't think there's anyone with autism who doesn't have ADHD. And the reason why I think that is that I think ADHD and autism are continuous. ADHD is just autism light. Um, and what that really is, it has to do with attention and the, atten the tendency to, 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 to um, monofocus, which is actually a result of not being able to attend to holes, not being able to um, experience reality holistically. The gestalt, um, as they say. Yeah, these these people suffer with social cues because those are um, those enter our awareness through many different uh, sensory modalities, and it requires a kind of multitasking that people with autism and ADHD suffer. Uh, they have trouble with. And but conversely, when your response to the world is to become overwhelmed by a flood of information from so many different modalities, and as a result, choose one narrow domain to attend to and specialize in and achieve mastery in. Um, you know, then you can do well in areas like like coding, for example, which I'm certain if I had had uh, if I had invested my time in, I would have been fairly handy at. Um, there's something about the way that I think it's all about syntax. It's all about it's all about the ability to turn an expression, um, uh, you know, making things conform to a grammar 
you know, like that's just what my brain is optimized for. Um, yeah, it's and, very logical. It's very mathematical. It's very well, concrete. I'm actually not really that, not probably not that great at math. Um, it's probably because I'm not very visual or spatial. Um, I'm not bad at math anymore, but when I was younger, I was. Um, uh, and um, that might be a certain thing about people with autism where they're, they, they differentiate so much that they have a hard time integrating things, but as they get older, they can catch up in terms of integration. Where in high school, I, had, I was in pre-algebra because I failed algebra one. When I went to community college, I placed into algebra, college algebra, which is al algebra three, but I had studied no algebra in the intervening time. But something happened where I could just think more in a, in a, in a more streamlined and sequential way about, I was able to integrate things that I, that I had already learned, but I just wasn't able to put it together. Um, it's, it's, again, it's, it's sort of reality comes at you in the form of a you know flood of competing sensations and thoughts and impressions and, and mm. what do you do with that you know the people with autism struggle um because they naturally look at things at such a fine-grained and detailed level of analysis um and um so anyway um anyway what, what about the so the tree situation can you just explain how that that relates again that was just where i was in my walk when mm -hmm. i had that realization so it's like an analogy or a metaphor that was like a living metaphor for you to recognize i'm not aware of it's being a metaphor for anything that that, that was that was just my location in in, in space but what what uh, does the tree mean again um doesn't necessarily mean anything i don't know but you you said there's something about how the tree was empty empty just how I'm just asking how is, how was the tree relevant to the story? The, the experience that I had as a younger person of realizing that my my identity was not something that I had that I had or held separately from my relationships with everyone else, but was rather constituted exhaustively by my relationships with every, everyone else. That was the moment when that realization hit me with the most force. Mm-hmm nice but then how, how what does it have to do with the tree i was just curious <laughs> trying to because i was to taking it i was i was taking a walk uh -huh. and um i i came by that that particular tree and it was while i was standing next to it that that i i'm just saying i remember the place where i was oh okay i had that realization so it doesn't have anything to do with the tree per se it's just you just remember looking at that tree when you had this realization Correct. That's so. Is that so interesting? How certain images or a place you were is connected to memory and a, and a turning point in your life. That's right. It's very. It's really neat. And 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 the the, the thing is, it does mean something. I just don't know what it means because everything means something. It does. Everything it does. Does everything. There, that's why I was wondering. Do you do you see some sort of symbolism in the tree? Whatever symbolism there is escapes. Really. So what 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 did the tree look like again? It grew horizontally. It never grew straight up. It was a very old tree. Oh, was it, it just... like was it like bent kind of, mm -hmm. and and it was was it really thick and old? Yes. Wow. I don't know. It grew horizontally. I get what I take from that is not everything in life is linear, right? And sometimes you gotta go 
in a different direction to find the light. And that's, and that's what the pretty, tree was doing, right? That's pretty good. I mean, that's a pretty good starting point. Yeah, we'll develop that more. <laughs> anyway, so then um, in your late 20s, you're going through all this. You're kind of coming to this realization that you haven't really been caring about other people. That was I, in my early 20s. Oh, that was in your early 20s. Okay. My late 20s is when I was sort of coming to acknowledge God. Okay. <clears throat> and what, what started, what was the impetus for acknowledging God and, or specifically even Christian God? Right. So, um, well, you know, I, I just found that I just, I just cared so much. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't really about a personal desire for immortality. Because on some level, I had made the decision um, to sacrifice my pursuit of transhumanist immortality in favor of um, having a meaningful relationship meaning, you know, with, with the human beings that I knew you know, as, a, as the human being that I was. So on some level, I had already sacrificed that dream of immortality for the sake of, you know, something more real but but um you know i i found so it wasn't so much like oh i just really wish i could go to heaven or whatever it was really so much that i just loved every, i i it's not like i was it's not like i was a buddhist or bodhisattva or altruist or anything like that but i just realized that the love that i bore other people was so eternal it wasn't about whether i continued to exist you know i would definitely cease to exist you know, if that were the condition of, you know, safeguarding, um, you know, you know what I what I what I saw as so beautiful, you know, in 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 the world, um, it was just I I just came to realize, you know, I I so desired certain things to happen, certain people to remain safe that I was just praying, and um, and I was also very miserable in my personal situation, and. Um, just in, just in feeling so cut off from everyone and everything still that you know i was just going over to the, the catholic chapel on campus whenever people weren't there and um and then i learned i learned things um i learned how to pray the rosary in latin um not that they were teaching it but i i taught myself um and um i learned how to pray it in english um and um so i was praying the rosary for a while not really as a believer when I got in my head about it, I decided I was reformed because I, because um, I acknowledged some pull toward religion that I couldn't explain rationally, and also Calvinism with its extreme sort of Cartesian modernity, um, it it's more it lends itself more to physicalism, just in the sense of like no look, the the bread and the wine can't be Jesus' body and blood because Jesus is in heaven. Is not here anymore. See that that kind of mindset, and like because I would ask myself questions like, "Where is Jesus in the space time continuum?" I don't know. Um, you know, other things just truly didn't make any kind of sense to me. Um, such as you know God supposedly being simple but also triune. Um, I think I perhaps begin to understand what is what is indicated by that now, but not not much and 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 um the the uh 
you know, for, for the kind of analytically minded modern uh, reformed Christians, you know, they were, they were into things like, um, you know, like William Lane Craig's concept of the Trinity is, you know, it's, it's very different from the classical one. He, he's believing in like sort of three individual centers of consciousness. Reformed analytic philosophers like Alvin Plantinga very specifically deny the doctrine of divine simplicity, which is a sort of uh, key tenet of the more ancient classical theism. And so anyway, I, when I got in my head about it, I just started moving in that direction because that was the, the only language that that's sort of jived with um, my understanding of Christianity. But, but the thing is, I really didn't have very strong faith. Um, uh, when I graduated, I was working in a nursing home and um, I found I couldn't do it um, um, for a number of reasons and I won't get into it. Uh, so I left right around when the, the COVID quarantine was happening. So everyone was staying at home anyway. And um, I, I was, I, I took psychedelics um, and um, I uh, found a renewed desire to investigate like matters of metaphysics. Spiritual things. What, yeah, what, uh... well, not even spiritual, but just just as deep as I could go in, in philosophy, just just get at get at you know, base reality, get at ultimate reality. And then I, I rediscovered the work of Christopher Lang, and I had actually already been aware of it from because I thought, well, what's the most philosophically sophisticated form of theism that I can, if I'm going to take God seriously, I, I need to think of the most philosophically sophisticated mm. form of theism I've ever encountered. And then I remembered, oh, well, mm. when I was 20, um, I, I, I was, I, I had been intrigued by the work of Christopher Lang and I didn't believe it. Um, I thought that it, that it sort of aired in its adoption of philosophical idealism. And then later on, I came to realize that it was more so I who had aired in my rejection of philosophical idealism. But, but when I, when I revisited that work, that was when faith came online for me but in a very holistic way where it wasn't even really faith anymore it was just it was just an awareness of the profoundly um, metaphysical and theistic nature of of uh, reality and really a panentheistic imminent and transcendent psychedelic holographic um uh you know conception of the reality in which we live and move and have our being and christopher langan is a wonderful philosopher mm um uh on those topics yeah what what's really fascinating um what inspired you to try psychedelics like what was what encouraged you to do that because jordan peterson had mentioned that it has a way of breaking depression it didn't it didn't it didn't alter mine but it it, it made me i had always thought that my seeking uh my my doing philosophy was just basically a pathological symptom of depression and what I found the psychedelics didn't didn't do anything for my depression. If anything, they made it worse because they made me more philosophical. <laughs> this made me super driven. Um, and um, and uh, Langan's arguments started landing. I could see what he was saying because I had, I was older and more sophisticated at thirty than I was at twenty. Mm. And um, I think he's I think he's remarkable. I think he's truly one of a kind. Um, I think the sophistication of that. Of, of not just that that one paper on the ctmu but is is total 
his his total body of writing and his his interviews on the internet if you if you have the understanding for what he's talking about and don't simply dismiss it as the the you know the 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 pseudo intellectual pretensions of 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 of, a, of an autodidact then i think that you'll you'll find that that well it's it's really so it's it's really to the point where i would i would say like nietzsche he is born posthumously he is a destiny but whether or not that's a good thing is you know whatever whatever is not acknowledged when it first comes on the scene for what it is has to be discovered later but in a sort of pathological form that's sort of what what i think peterson meant when he said jung said that what a man does not understand he's forced to act out as his destiny but he doesn't understand up here he has to act it out and it becomes his destiny mm. so unfortunately or it will perhaps more in a way that may not be good I think Langan is a destiny. He's a terminus. He's 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 somewhere that that we are going to go. But when we get there, I'm not sure that we will have understood him in the right way. I don't think he even understands his own ideas in the right way. His understanding of yeah, it doesn't seem like many people are giving him the time of day. I, I had never even heard of him honestly. Well, his his understanding of God is ultimately Darwinian and and, and eugenic, mm. um, and um, it's not. It's it's. I mean, I, I, I could go in more into this and I have done, in, you know, earlier. Yeah, we won't, we won't go too deep into it, but. But God is that. love and God is, God is not um, some meta Darwinian selection principle that selects mm. the, 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 the strongest um, at the expense of the weak rather, you know, the, the, the true nature of selection is that the fittest die. For the sake of the week mm. that's 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 the way that reality really works yeah. that's 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 the only reason that you and i exist now it's because christ Agape. jesus did not consider his divinity something to be to to be grasped but rather he emptied himself of it and once he mm. emptied himself of his divinity he then proceeded to voluntarily <clears throat> relinquish his own mortal life he gave everything in order for there to be anything and wow. that's the true nature of selection but that's what christopher langan doesn't understand that's wild, you know. That kind of, this kind of ties into the universalism discussion because in in an, in a Darwinian social Darwinism or or naturalistic framework, um, it seems as though, you know, if if God, for example, was Darwinian, then he would be okay with using certain people, if not most people, as a means to his end. And even even if it means to their detriment or disadvantage, you know, and that's kind of scary to think about. But it seems like when when Calvinists talk about how God is glorified in the damnation of the reprobate, it seems as though God is using them to His end, but to, to their disadvantage. And it, it's that's kind of scary picture of God, not scary in like a reverence fear sense of God, but scary in His and in like that God cannot be a loving God at all. But cannot it's because be we thought it's because we thought God was like that, that we crucified the Lord of glory. And when that's, when that's our only understanding of God, just whatever we would do if we were God, all God can do in response is in sort of Girardian fashion, offer himself up in, in order to himself be the, the sacrificial lamb in order to break that, that cycle of let's say mimetic violence. Mm. 
That's, that's all he can do until and 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 offer himself up to be crucified again and again and again until we in love begin to understand and, and begin to love because he first loved us. That's that's the whole. It's just the same thing as a parent's continual sacrifice for the child who mm. doesn't even understand that that the parent has a mind distinct from his own yet. You know, it's been a wild like um, revelation, and that I've been really thinking about ever since I talked to Father. Um, Andrew Jarmus, the Orthodox priest, we were talking a little bit about atonement and sacrifice. And he was mentioning how in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, sacrifice is not the killing. The killing is not the sacrifice. See, the sacrificial system was, in other cultures, they'd understand this. If you looked at South American, African cultures, island cultures, Caribbean cultures, they understand the concept of a barbecue. You, you take your, some of your livestock, you kill it, then you, you prepare it to be cooked. You stick it on the, the barbecue and it cooks up. And in the sacrificial system, what God was asking them to do was, you know how, like, have you ever had, I'm, you're from Texas, right? So you've had a barbecue, I'm sure, right? I was raised Hare Krishna. Oh, they, do, do they not eat meat? They don't eat meat. Do you eat meat now? Have you changed? I do now. Okay, I see. Okay, so anyway, but have you had barbecue since? Possibly not. All right. Well, I highly, that. I highly recommend it if you're into meat because basically barbecue, you take this meat and you, you um, add it, fix it up with all spices, um, barbecue sauce, all sorts of flavors, and you stick it in this fire barbecue for hours and hours and hours, and it gets so tender and soft. Is and that a the, is that a French word in its origin? Like bow. Like from the beard to the, cue, I have no you know, idea. To, the, to the to the rear end to the you know that's 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 a great Christian question podcast but I believe that's what it is or maybe it's from barbacoa barbacoa but, uh, but what, 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 well the, well no but then the question is just what what does that come from no buccaneer know. buccaneer I think it comes from a similar root like Bucanier were the people who are just getting wood for barbecues or something maybe. in the Caribbean I'm not sure know. the epistemology I, I think I think barbecue I think if we look it up. You know, we're always, we're always saying, what if you look it up? You know, it's like on. It's well, on you look it up while I'm talking, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Any, <laughs> so anyway, in the ancient Hebrew times, the Jewish sacrificial system, the sacrifice is not the killing. The sacrifice is that while the, while the ancient people are making this beautiful barbecue, they, God was asking them to cut off the fatty, tastiest, juiciest part of the meat. And give it to him so that he could eat it like as an offering to him so that he'd smell the aroma and he'd and he'd get them all in the mood to be you know be on good terms with them so the sacrifice was not the killing the sacrifice is the meal that was given to god so then flip it over jesus flips it flips it upside down the father oh and the other aspect of it too is that the big part of the sacrifice was that they spent a lot of time, resources raising this livestock. So it's not like they just bought this from the store. They raised this livestock. And it wasn't just any, it wasn't just any old um, lamb or any old cow. It was the best. Their top, the tip top of their crop, of their livestock that they raised. They sacrificed that. They killed it. And the sacrifice was giving up the best part of the meat to God. So I think there's almost this... Um, I think like in modern sense, 
it's almost um, similar to the aspect that the the concept of tithing in a sense. Like, you know, we spend so we spend eight hours of our day working, um, so many days a year, and we giving up a portion of our um, income to God or to ministry is is a kind of similar kind of sacrifice. But besides that point, um, you have Jesus who flips it upside down. You have the father who gives his best lamb, which is Jesus. And then we, we kill him, but God gives us the meal in the Eucharist, you know? Um, so the Eucharist then becomes not just this arbitrary meal, but it is, why does it have to be Jesus? Why is, why is the, the Eucharist considered the body and blood of Jesus? Because in the sacrificial terms, it's God giving, God the Father giving us the meal to appease us. You know, it's, it's not, the, the sac, God didn't need to be appeased. He didn't have to be bought. It's really, Jesus is really God giving a sacrifice to buy our love. Uh, when you really look at it that way, it's really fascinating. But anyway. I think that that might be a good note to end on until part two. Because yeah. I sense that you've not run out of questions and there's, there's always more to discuss when it comes to like Hare Krishna and all these far out things. But Oh, for sure. But, I mean, why? How much but, time do you have? Well, I think I this is about all the time that I have for now. That's but, fine. You know, you and I, we, we can talk whenever. So we'll have Cal part two um, and get more. I'd love to hear your story about Mary and your dreams and then where you're at now as well. And mm. but I guess as some closing thoughts, <laughs> as some closing thoughts, and we can talk a little bit more about universalism as well. But as your closing thoughts, um, I guess any do you have any words of encouragement to people who are kind of on the fringes of the faith or who oh. or or who are on that that side of materialistic naturalistic thinking that mm -hmm. may want to be encouraged or or are seeking you know something deeper I think that there's a tendency that's that's perpetuated by you know believers and by former atheists whenever they convert and become believers to look at their lives as though it were a kind of discontinuous or piecewise function there's this absolute gap uh, you know or translation that happens between you know like one trajectory and then breakpoint then other trajectory that's like totally discontinuous and that you know before before they converted god's hand was not over them or he was not he was not working things out for them after all i mean it's written that he works he works in all things for good you know for those who believe in him it doesn't quite say that he's doing so for those who don't and you know Karl Barth says that the forgetting of god is already break the breaking forth of his wrath um when the old testament says god stretched out his hand against x or y i don't think it really means that god himself purposed their destruction like god positively wills everything like god has two right hands it's like god has a right hand though left he has a positive will and a permissive will um i mean that maybe doesn't make sense on a sufficiently classical uh, form of theism but i think if you have the right balance or interplay between classical and pro 
process daily, you can uh, perhaps begin uh, to to allow for some sense where you know God has a positive and a permissive will. Um, and um, things that are that are not mindful of their of the source of their existence tend to go out of existence. God didn't need to stretch out his hand against the Babel Tower. Um, because on some level, all it could do was fall to the ground in a confusion of different languages. Whenever humankind tries to play the role of God, it it forgets who the source of its existence is. And the only result of that is, to, the only possible result of that is to saw off the branch that you're sitting on. And um, so, you know, we we might fall into the belief that God, his hand was not over us, you know, before we, before we repented or before we turned, but really God was orchestrating everything. Take us to the moment where we would repent and we would turn. Um, I think that we have a tendency to think that, that belief in God is purely a matter of, of acknowledging that there is some big cop in the sky who likes some things and doesn't like other things, and that if we do what the cop likes, then we get to go to heaven. Um, and then we, in turn, like try to pretend that atheists already know that, but they're just willfully denying it. Uh, most atheists would really like to believe something like that. Um, uh, the, 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 the thing is, that's not really belief in God. If your concern is heaven for its own sake, that is, you know, it's just heaven for one, which is hell. So, really, with, God has always been revealing himself to you, and he has never lied to you about who he is. And you have always acknowledged God's existence, however far you may have buried such awareness. I would submit that you are at least subconsciously aware of one thing, that the most selfless love of which you're capable is the right thing to do. Um, and, and, and is what you should do. You should always... You should always act out the most selfless love of which you are capable, and that is your own innate, indestructible knowledge of God. Um, and God has God has never lied to you concerning who He is. Everything that you have seen in terms of the beautiful, the true, the good, every selfless action that you cannot help but but love, um, because you see Christ in it, um, is from God and is a revelation of God's own, you know, nature to you, and um, it's so hard to explain to people who have this notion of God who like, like they, they think that, that, a, that, a, that a teenage boy who, who, um, who doesn't believe the gospel, um, but who runs into a burning building um, uh, to save someone and himself perishes in the flames, they think that he goes, he goes himself in, in I mean, it, it's, it's, it's just, it's just so nonsensical. You know, they have no conception that 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 every every such act is from God. It images God, um, and you know, God is God is the only origin and, and and terminus of our of our being. Every action is 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 is, you know, our seeking God, and um, you know, it, the 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 notion that it all occurs within the space of propositional acknowledgement of God is to is, is they pretend that a parent only has a relationship with his child at the moment when a when their child develops a theory of mind. It's a confusion. 
Um, on one level, certainly there's a difference, but on a deeper level, there's no difference. His hand is, is like, behold, all souls are mine. Or what does he say? It's like, you know, it's, you know, I, I, you know, before, before you were conceived, I knew you, you know, you know, these, these verses. Yeah. Um, I knit you together in your mother's womb. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, you know, that's what I would say. One of the songs. Yeah, the, I mean, that's just really what I would emphasize. The, the notion of like this hard divide between believers and non-believers is, is a misbegotten idea. And there are some non-believers who seem to have a clearer conception of God as judged by their actions um, than, than some who like, you know, like, like, like hypocritical Pharisees um, are, are whitewashed tombs. And so, you know, that, that just, I, would, I would just say that you, you, you know God, you have seen God, he has, he has shown himself to you and he will again. Don't, don't imagine that, you know, you know, don't imagine that it's all a matter of professing belief in X or Y. Um, and because, you know, you, you can see through the, you know, the, the BS, um, you know, that's put forward by various, you know, self-styled religious people. And you can do that because you have that that interior recognition of who God is, even if you don't acknowledge him in a certain propositional way, but you will. Um, and, and, and just, just stay open to when that happens. Um, stay open to everything, every, every, everything you have to, 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 to know God and relate to God. You have to integrate everything in your experience. Um, um, it's, uh, uh, anyway, so that's, that's all. Yeah. It made me think of, um, I keep coming back to Acts 17 when Paul's talking to the Greeks in Berea um, or the Berean Jews. And I wanted to read it because, because actually, no, he was in Athens, actually, I believe. Yeah. He was in Athens and he's talking to the Jews in Athens. And it says, well, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. What's fascinating is that Paul reasoned like he didn't just, it wasn't strictly experiential. There was a reason. Paul didn't do presuppositional apologetics. He did, apparently. That's what it says. He reasoned. Well, no, no. I mean, the oh. presuppositional apologetics on oh, some level is, is not reasoning. But I mean, it is. But but oh. I'm, I'm just making a joke. Oh. It's just okay. kind of an inside <laughs> theology nerd joke, maybe. All right. We'll talk about it in the yeah. next episode. As well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happen to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this blab uh, babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news of Jesus and the resurrection, which was very, was in, in Greek times, the resurrection was super controversial. Like they hated the idea of resurrecting with a body because they believed that the body was bad, which is fascinating. So that was like the most scandalous part of the resurrection or of, of the cross and the resurrection was the res was because the resurrection was into a body and not into the clouds. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Aeropagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they, they mean. 
It's interesting that they were looking for dialogue conversation. All the Athenian and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the, the latest new ideas. Sounds like, sounds like us, basically. <laughs> Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found I even found an altar, an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of every of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. What's fascinating about that passage is that he's actually quoting, um, it's so good, but he's actually quoting their poets and prophets. He's not quoting scripture, which is really interesting. And, you know, you wouldn't see John MacArthur doing anything like that. <laughs> Well, you know, the nice thing about not having been raised Christian is that on some level you get to experience passages like that for the first time as an adult. And when I, when I read that, it hit me like a ton of bricks. <clears throat> so good. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being in, is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You know, I was wondering what he meant by commands every other people everywhere, un, everywhere to repent. He's talking specifically about repenting, metanoia, change of mind of who you think God is. He's not necessarily talking about repenting in the sense of like change your behavior. Because that comes next. That comes later. You can't just change behavior. You need to change your idea of who you think God is. God is not a stone. He's not a statue. He's not gold or silver. God is human. That's what he's trying to say. Because then he says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the, by the man he has appointed, Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Wow. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, and but others said, we want to hear, hear you again on this subject. It's really fascinating. I mean, he kind of threw it out there in this discussion. Like, this very discussion was very intellectual, right? And it, it's funny how Paul, like, sometimes he appeals to the existential, the experiential. Sometimes he appeals to the, uh, the um, propositional, theoretical aspects of things. But it's such a, yeah, I, I like how you said it's very arresting. True. He was all things to all people. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's the thing. Everyone has a conception of God. 
and everyone because everyone has a conception of ultimate reality it doesn't really matter if you think if it's wood, if it's wood or stone or if you think it's particles and you think it's the space-time continuum or the big bang or what have you god says repent in the end reform your conception of who i am because mm. i'm a person um and i'm and, you and i'm when, like, i'm like you and i'm love oh, yeah right and and um so it's to, to believe the gospel is to understand that ultimate reality is love and that when you understand that love you know your own your your response is 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 to repent it's only mm. it's only in seeing that ideal that you can understand how you've fallen short of the mark and um and so yeah that's that's the whole business of it but it's not something which is affirmed or known propositionally it's it's only something that that is 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 known experientially in the experience of dying to oneself and you can't mm. die to yourself out of self-interest um and uh so you know that's that's and yeah I, I have a feeling that paul would just be a little bit different um uh than sort of our kind of mainstream protestant apologists when it comes to relating with atheists um but um yeah so that's a wonderful it's a wonderful passage um i guess that's why so many churches are, are named like mars hill because the yeah. Areopagus, I guess, would be would be the Mars Mars Hill if you like take it from Greek to Latin. But maybe all their translations said Mars Hill. I don't know. But yeah, and I wonder, I wonder if he established. I mean, I'm sure if you go to Athens, you can find Mars Hill, right? And you can mm -hmm. probably find a deep Christian uh, tradition that's still there to this day. Mm -hmm. I imagine mm -hmm. it must be might have died off in some sense. But well, that's that's a good note to end on until part two, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Cal, for joining. Thank you so much for your time. I mean, I know I talk a lot and I talk over you and, and other people, but so just thank you for hey, putting up. I always enjoy talking to you. I think it's you're you're one of the most fascinating minds I think I've ever run into. That's extremely kind. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, have a good day. Yeah, God bless. Merry Christmas. I'll talk to you. Lord, Lord. not an easy path But I'm willing to trust Though I'm dying in the dust <laughs>